your congregation size is not unlike my congregation size. If you see me afterwards, I've got a picture of my little church in, in the village of Walsh. Um, we pack about 100 people into a, into a sanctuary about this size. Uh, your pulpit's a little different than mine. Mine looks like the prow of a ship. Uh, we're very close to uh, the, the largest freshwater fishing port in the world, so we see some similarities, but I've got this great pulpit, all solid oak. It's, I don't know, the last minister was, uh, you know, uh, about yay tall. I don't know how he ever saw over it, but uh, I will try not to do damage to this, Steve, um, and hopefully have enough space to spread out here. Um, they tell us that we live in a, in a post-Christendom Age. I don't know if, if that term has made it all the way out here to the east before. And when I talked to my bunch of farmers in Walsh, I said, what does that mean when they tell us that we're living in a post-Christendom age? Well, uh, it means in part, I'm 42, and when I was 12, I went to public school and we still said the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of uh, right after O Canada. We still had a religion teacher come in with a flannel graph and, and do a, a religion story. And all the kids I went to school with went to Sunday school with me, even if their parents never came. The parents had that sense that it was good and right that their kids sh should go to Sunday school. And I don't know if things have changed out here. I suspect they have to the point where most of the kids that go to your children's school probably don't go to Sunday school. And the parents actually are to the point where they think it might be damaging or harmful to expose uh, children to Sunday school or to kids club or to religion of any sort. Um, last week on Sunday, my wife and I were in Roundcounter. Uh, it looks like Rencontre in French or Rencontre in English, but in Newfie it's Roundcounter. Learned that from the locals. And in Roundcounter, it's a, a remote fishing village down, uh, uh, you leave uh, from Bay Largent uh, on a passenger-only ferry, no road access, no air access, 150 people, a little Catholic church, a really nice big Anglican church. The Anglican church has six services every year, the Catholic church has fewer. It's a post-Christendom age. Uh, the people uh, when they heard that I was there, that I was a minister, the one man, born-again man, said, I'll, I'll tell the neighbors, and you can preach in the Anglican church on Sunday if you want. He showed up with his wife. Uh, the rest didn't come. They'd had a party the night before. Um, and they said, we, we'd love to come, but we're not going to be able to make it. We've been out all night. It's a post-Christendom age. We know that, and that's not an all-bad thing. Because the reality was I went to school with everybody and they all went to Sunday school, uh, but most of them weren't Christians and perhaps they were under the impression that there was some benefit to be had from simply going to Sunday school. And so the world has changed. But what becomes very interesting is how we as a church respond to that. And the church has been in an awful lot of a hurry to try to figure out how to respond to this post-Christendom age. They've come up with all sorts of strange, unusual ideas. You know, maybe if we have uh, more winning music or, or better media. I'm not saying anything against music, nor am I saying anything against media. But we get all these strange ideas about how can we reach a, a world that knows nothing about Christianity. If you go out on the street and, and quiz people and ask them if they know the difference between the story of Noah or Jonah or Moses... Can you name three women in the Bible? You find more and more people have less and less knowledge. In fact, Christianity is treated with some suspicion. Uh, 
people are not certain whether or not Christians are really good people after all. So how do we conduct ourselves in a world that seems to have passed on beyond Christendom? Well, this is the question we've been asking in our little village in Walsh for some time. And that's why I'm taking my congregation through the book of Acts. That's why you're getting this long preamble to this sermon. Because I think in the book of Acts, we have a, a number of descriptive passages that just tell us stories of what happened. But I think also in the book of Acts, we find some prescriptive instructions that are given to a church in a pre-Christendom era. In an era when the world knew nothing at all about Jesus, couldn't tell you the difference between Moses and Noah and Jonah, couldn't name any of the women in the Bible, didn't know a thing about Jesus, couldn't decide whether Christians were good things or bad things, in fact, were openly persecuting Christians. How did the church conduct itself and how did they go from 120 people in an upper room on the day of Pentecost to a force that utterly transformed the world? Well, I think we find in the book of Acts some things that are intended to be used by us, to be prescriptive to us. And in a few minutes, the bulk of my message is going to take a look at how this early church prayed. But because you haven't been with me for the trip, I, I just want to set the context for you for a moment. Because there's been an awful lot in the first four chapters of Acts on how the early church preached and I do believe that preaching, the proclamation of the gospel, became the, the power that propelled the church forward. It, it wasn't that the church became a great uh, outreach doing soup kitchens, food banks, um, care for women. All these things are good. All these things adorn the gospel. The church was propelled by the proclamation of the word. And it's interesting, in the first four chapters, we get to hear the apostle Peter preach three times over. Twice he preaches to, to just assemble groups of people, and once he preaches to the Sanhedrin, though he's really meant to be defending himself. He kind of turns it into an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And there's a few things that we hear in Peter's sermons that are consistent throughout, and I think they're things that we should be listening for in our sermons. I, I dare to stand here in Steve's pulpit and say, this is the things you should be listening for when Steve preaches, or when my brother Paul comes from Aurelia to preach, or anybody else comes to preach, or if you go far away from this place and have to find a new church and settle down and say, how will this church fare in this community? How, how well will they reach and transform the people? The three things that I hear in, in Peter consistently in those first three sermons, the first is this. It does not seem to concern him that he is a little bit hard on the people he's preaching to. We hear this all the time. In my particular denomination, uh, back a little bit west, all the time they're saying, don't, don't be too hard on people. Uh, don't talk to people about sin. You, you want people to come in and feel comfortable, but that's not what Peter does. He seems not the least concerned that he might lose his audience by speaking so very boldly about their sin, and consistently when he speaks to them, he says, you people who took Jesus, who God sent as his anointed Messiah, and crucified him, you're guilty of that. You're guilty of that, and you deserve the punishment that is going to come upon you. You know, the result of preaching to people about their sin is it awakens the thing in them that might cause them to pay attention. They recognize, I have a need. Uh, something has happened here where I'm separated from God and God would be right and just to cast me off. 
If you begin with the, the positive side of the gospel without first telling people why they need the gospel, they're very likely to say, that's nice for you, I don't need that. But we hear that consistently in, in Peter. Every time Peter preaches in these first four chapters, he speaks to people and he says, you, you sinners stand guilty and condemned before God. And he matches that, that weight of their guilt and their sin with God in his mercy has done what is necessary through the blood of Jesus to forgive sins, come and receive salvation. You should always hear, when you hear good preaching, somebody talking to you about the need, and I've heard that already up here a number of times, that we have a need, that we're sinners, that we're cast off by God because of our sin, that he'd be right to condemn us, but in his mercy he has given to us what we do not deserve through the blood of his Son. And then finally and consistently we hear Peter calling on them to repent and believe this good news. We hear in Acts chapter 2, the sermon on the day of Pentecost. The people are cut to the heart at the words of Peter because he's told them about his, their sin. And they say, what should we do? And Peter said to them, this is Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. He puts those two things together in the first sermon. If we go over to chapter 3 uh, and verse 19, uh, again, he's preached this time in Solomon's portico uh, to this uh, group of people who have been assembled. And this is what he says at the conclusion of his sermon. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Repent. He says, turn aside, come, come back, turn the other way, repent, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Now, it's interesting, in the final sermon, I call it a sermon, it's a defense before the Sanhedrin, uh, I wish I had time to preach you that sermon. That's that's fascinating sermon. I found myself thinking here in, in Newfoundland, it, it fits because Peter and John are, are your outport fishermen. I mean, you remember when, when Peter is at the fire before Jesus is killed and he's there on trial and they keep saying to him, you must be a Galilean, we can tell by your accent. You know what that means, right? You're an outport fisherman. Everybody knows you're here in town, but everybody knows you're not from here. You're from over there, you know. But in this particular thing before the Sanhedrin, you've got 72 members of the Sanhedrin and all their finest with all the power, with all of the authority. And you've got these two rumpled fishermen without any sort of education who have spent a night in prison, been dragged out in rumpled clothing. It's all meant to be intimidation. They say, by what authority or what name do you do the things that you've done here and say the things you've said here? And they intend to intimidate them. But Peter answers back, he says, you want to know by what name? By the name of Jesus, the Son of God, whom you crucified, but whom God raised up to life again. And his name is the only name given amongst men by which we, and he says, you must be saved. And the message is implicit there. Listen, Jesus, who is the Son of God, who you crucified and God raised from the dead, God overruled your decision. He's the only name by which you must be saved. The message is implicit. Repent, turn aside, be baptized. Sound preaching. 
But how do they pray? Uh, we pick this up right here. This has just happened. The Sanhedrin has threatened them. They haven't hurt them. They've threatened them. Peter and John have stood before them, not knowing how the outcome would be. But they've sent them out and they said, we, we threaten you. We say, do not preach anymore in this name. It makes no sense. It's the only name given amongst men by which men must be saved. Don't preach that name anymore. Peter and John go, go judge for yourself. Is it right to obey you rather than God? And they go out and they meet together with a group of people just like this and they say, we need to pray. We need to pray because the entire mission hangs in the balance. The entire mission is threatened. And, and I want to take the next, I'm not going to make up a number, a little while, uh, to talk to you about how the church prays. But just because I don't want you sitting there going, how long is this guy going to go? Uh, there's three things I'm going to give you. There are three unequal points. There's a big point at the beginning, three realities that we're going to talk about. There's a medium-sized point uh, that is uh, three um, requests that are made in the prayer. And then there's a really brief point right at the end where we get the three results. Okay, so it's going to be, if you're taking notes, three, three realities, three requests, and three results. Let me read you this brief passage, Acts uh, chapter 4 and verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, this is the prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who the, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Three realities about God. Thank you. <clears throat> we have a tendency when we, when we read prayers to just sort of zip through them, right? Somebody else is praying. You're just, you know, listen to how it begins. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is their approach. This is the first reality that, that they reflect on. They have been threatened. Their lives, their livelihoods, their freedom, something has been threatened. If you continue to go this way, bad things are going to come upon you. They get on their knees and they remind themselves, God is the almighty creator of this world. I have traveled back and forth across this province. Been in Marystown, Round Counter, uh, Gander, Corner Brook, all the way up Gross Morn. My poor wife, she's seen moose, 
She's seen caribou. We've seen two bears. We saw a whale for free. We didn't even go on a whale watching thing. We just got in a boat to take a ferry, and there's a whale there. We saw dolphins. We saw all kinds of great creatures, and every time she sees them, I reach in and pull up my cell phone, get it open, and they're gone. And so she started taking to finding like wooden statues of them and we take a picture of her with a wooden moose and wooden puffins and all kinds of things. I'm amazed when I, when I look at the mountains in gross morn. And remember God says, I laid the foundations of the earth and I stretched out the heavens in gross morn. We had one clear night where we looked up and we saw stars like you can't see them in Ontario. And I'm reminded, my God made that. Maybe the Sanhedrin, maybe the fancy townies with their nice suits and good shoes that are threatening terrible things on, on the outport fishermen who are faithful to following Jesus. But our God made the ocean and everything that's in it, the skies and all that are in it, the earth and all that is in it. Our God made this. And so the church begins by meditating upon God's power. And their second truth in prayer builds upon the first one. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This has meaning in the mouth of David. This has meaning when it's prayed by the New Testament church as well. If the first part of their prayer, the first reality is that God is powerful, that he has made all this, the second reality is that God has spoken, that God has promised. Think about this. David, who wrote this, this is Psalm 2 that, that they're quoting as they pray. David knew what it was to be threatened and to be pursued. You remember Samuel went and anointed him. He went to find a, the person to anoint. He saw seven big strapping muscular men of Jesse. He said, none of these. The Lord said, none of these. They brought in this scrappy little ruddy shepherd boy. He said, anoint that man, king of Israel. So he pours the oil out over him. Problem is, there's already a king of Israel. His name's Saul. He's probably big, and he's got a great big beard, and he's brawny. Fortunately, he's not very good aim with a spear. And over and over again, he makes attempts on David's life. And David is, is running and hiding and fleeing in the wilderness. An entire army comes out against David over and over again. And David would have reason to think, oh, I'm never going to get to the throne except he has the promise of God. He has the anointing of God upon him. God has promised David, listen, when you pray, it's important that we pray for the things that God has promised us, the things that God has said are true. And so the church comes together and they remember David who was anointed by Samuel and who is running from his enemies and who is praying this prayer or writing this psalm from Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth uh, come together and make their plots and if we keep on going, one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament, God in heaven laughs. What makes God laugh? The plans and plots of powerful people. He says, I have a plan, and my plan will stand. We have promises that are given to the church. 
Jesus says this to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we're threatened, when we're afraid, we have this, this promise, God, you are the maker of the universe, the maker of the world and the sky and all that is in it. And you have spoken and promised. And we trust in your promise. And that leads us to the third reality. And that is the truth that God is sovereign. That's what comes together with God's power and with God's promise is that God is doing the things that God has promised he would do. Look at verse 27 and 28 here in chapter 4. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined would take place. Not only does God have the power to act, not only does he promise that he will act, but we say, see by experience that he is acting, even in this, that the opposition of his enemies is in, in vain. That, that the enemies may threaten and the enemies may act and the enemies may even just seem to have some sort of triumphal moment. But God says, don't judge too quickly. Brother and sister Christian, you need to take a long view of history. Don't, don't get caught up in these short views of history, these short, choppy little things, the things that happen when, when you get news from the bank that says, hey, you're, you're overdrawn and, and, and you didn't expect some bills that were coming, short view of history. The short view of history, when you get a call from your doctor to say, listen, the tests have come back and things are not, not the way we wanted them to be. Uh, the, the short view of history, when particular governments get elected into power and you go, oh, this is a disaster for our nation. How could this sort of thing happen? That's a short view of history. The Christian takes a long view of history because if you'd asked the disciples on the Saturday after the Friday when they killed Jesus, whether the nations of the world had plotted in vain, they'd say, no, they didn't plot in vain at all. Their, their plans have all succeeded and Jesus is dead and he's buried over there in that tomb. Ask him on the third day. God has a tendency to snatch victory out of the victory party of his enemies. It is the settled faith of the church that God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of men. Consider these repeated claims of, of Peter here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and 23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. His greatest tragedy? No. The greatest wickedness? Yes. The greatest wickedness that has ever happened. God the Son, our Lord Jesus, presented himself having given no true offense, guilty of no crime, it is maligned, falsely accused, declared innocent by Pilate. I find this man innocent, but I sentence him to death anyways. Man is responsible for that, but God says, that's my plan and purpose. I did that. 
you did that and you're guilty, I've used it for my glory. Again, in Acts chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, and, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, says Peter, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Herein we find contained this powerful doctrine that God so governs and guides all things by the secret counsels of his will that he always brings to pass what he has intended and determined. But he's working these things out in a long stream. Listen, I always go off note for a few minutes. I'm going to go for a second. We, we have a revealed will of God, right? God tells us what it is that we ought to do, how we ought to conduct ourselves, how we ought to live. N not so that we can be saved, we're saved by grace, but the fruit that's coming out of that, the obedience that's coming out of that, the faithfulness tells us this is how I ought to live. Not a fatalist. I, I don't think, listen, fate is in, God is in control. And not only that, he's told me how it's going to end, which gives me complete freedom to obey God, to be faithful to God, to follow after God, and to care not at all what the rulers of this world may say, what they may threaten, and even what they might do. The man or woman who has come to understand the truth of God's sovereignty goes free in this world because they say, nothing you say frightens me. Nothing you do will frighten me. You can only do to me what God allows you to do to me, and if God allows it, it's for his glory, and if it's for his glory, it's for my good, and so even if you kill me, I will be happy to serve faithfully my God. Those are the realities. I told you that's a big piece. Here's the three requests. That's just the beginning of their prayer. That's them saying, listen, God, we know that you're powerful. God, we know that you have prophesied and spoken things. And God, we know that you're sovereign. So how do you pray when you know those things? Here's the first request, verse 29. And now, O oh Lord... Destroy all of our enemies. Doesn't say that. Okay. And now, O oh Lord, get us out of here quick. We don't want to suffer this way. Doesn't say that. It says, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's as close as they get to get us out of here or deal with our enemies. They say, if God is all-powerful, if God has made promises, if God is sovereign, we content ourselves with saying, God, we just want to know that you have heard what the Sanhedrin has said to us. And as long as we know that you have heard what they said, we're going to leave that in your hands. Deal with that in whatever way you see fit. How often do we hear of the persecution of the church? And the first thing we say is, God, end the persecution. Not realizing that God has brought that persecution upon them for his own purposes. We might do better to pray as the apostles prayed. Here's the second part. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's speaking the word that got them in this mess in the first place. If all they'd been doing is handing out cans of soup in, in the temple courts, the Sanhedrin would have been like, yeah, don't leave them. Don't, don't bother them. You know, leave them alone. If all they'd been doing is, is digging wells for thirsty people, which is a good thing to do, nobody would have bothered them. If all they had been doing is setting up a crisis pregnancy center somewhere, nobody would have bothered them. What got the Sanhedrin was so upset 
was they're preaching a resurrection in Jesus' name. And people are believing that and it's wrecking everything for us. What got them in trouble was speaking the word of God, speaking the gospel. This is what got them threatened. And what is it that they pray? They say, God, you are powerful. You have promised you are sovereign. Look on the threats and God, give us boldness to keep on doing the thing that got this whole thing started in the first place. I see two things coming out of that prayer for boldness. Who prays for boldness? People who lack boldness. So if you're a kind of person that goes, I don't feel bold about the gospel. Good news, neither Peter and John. Uh, They came back and said, boy, uh, our knees are shaking and our mouths are dry and we're not too sure if we got the courage to keep on going. So they got down on their knees and they said, God, you are, you are powerful and you've promised you're sovereign. Look on their threats and God, give us boldness so that we can keep doing what we're afraid to do. Take away our timidity and give us courage to do this thing that could cost us everything. That's the first thing I think their prayer for boldness meant. And the second was that they understood that the proclamation of the gospel was more important than their safety or their security or even their lives. Why are they asking God, give us the boldness to continue to preach the gospel? Because they realize this is the only way the church goes forward. This is the only way the mission is complete. And there's the third thing. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Well, should we pray that too? I didn't clear this sermon with with, uh, my brother here. I think we should pray that. But you know what I think that means? I I think that means I put in God's hand, I say, listen, Lord, here's what I want. Here's what I want to do. Here's what you have called me to do. I want to share the gospel with boldness. I want to speak with boldness. I want to be courageous about the gospel. I don't want to be timid and fearful. And God, as I'm preaching the gospel with boldness, here's what I'd like you to do, Lord. I'd like you to underline it with signs and wonders and powers in whatever way you see fit. Lord, I want to I pray for people and see people get well. Lord, Lord we want to move into communities and, and do ministry and have people come back and say to us, there were, there were amazing things happening. I don't have any power to do that. God does. And so we put that in his hands, say, God, in whatever way you see fit, would you underline the preaching of your gospel so that people's eyes are open? The greatest miracle that ever happens in this world is not that lame men walk or blind men see, it's that dead men live. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, God, underline the preaching of the gospel with powerful works, whatever those may be. And so here's the three results that came. And when they prayed, the place in which they had gathered was shaken. It's verse 30. We're never told if that's an earthquake or simply the impression of those who were in the room, but we know that those who were present felt it. They understood it. This this place has been shaken. And then it goes on to say, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I was glad to hear how Steve prayed here a few moments ago. And it was green light to tell you the truth here. Listen, these people These guys, most of the people that are praying here, they were there on the day of Pentecost, right? When the Spirit was poured out. So how is it that they're filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't think this is second blessing theology, right? This is 
ongoing blessing. This is God doing the work that he's going to do through the church by the power of the Spirit, by increasing the capacity of his people for more of his Spirit and just pouring more of the Spirit upon you. If you pray and say, God, give us boldness to preach and underline what we're doing by your power, God's going to do that by pouring the Spirit out on you. Because we're not self-sufficient, we're God-reliant. We need God to work by his power through his Spirit, and that's exactly what he does. He pours more of the Spirit upon them, and the result, the fruit of all of that, is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with all boldness. The future of the church is assured because these men are given boldness to preach the very thing that had brought them into persecution is the thing they say, God, give us the power to keep on doing that. And God says, yes, I will. And they keep on going. And I must confess that I am sometimes shaken by opposition and by threat of consequence from holding fast the word of truth. And I don't know your context well, but I think I know it well enough from a few visits to know that you're not unaware of these sorts of threats. We don't face the sorts of threats right now that Peter and John may have been facing, but we do face opposition. We face those who are increasingly beginning to say to us, we don't want to hear that anymore. We're happy for you to have a soup kitchen and to run a pregnancy crisis center, but would you please stop talking about Jesus? Would you please stop talking about sin and how people need a savior? We're offended by that. And I think things are going to get darker. It's easy to forget that God is sovereign and it's easy to revert into self-sufficiency mode. I say that all the time. Look out at my congregation at Walsh I, and I think to myself, we got this. I know how to preach. I've been doing it for years. We'll just... And then I'm reminded every once in a while God kind of cuts the feet out from under us and I think he allows those things to happen to go, whoa, whoa. <laughs> you guys aren't self-sufficient. You're God-reliant. If you're going to do something in the city of St. John's, and it's going to rely on the, the arms and the legs and the shoulders of just the people in this room. Forget about it. Go home. It'll never work. But if it re relies on the God who made the earth and, and the heavens and the oceans and everything that is in them and has promised, oh, you got reason for hope. you got reason to pray. Remember that God has made promises over his church. He has promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's not a passive thing. That has to do with a, with a church militant that is moving forward into the community, preaching the word, calling people to repent and to believe and promising to them, mercy will meet you here. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. For you personally, God has promised he who has begun a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus discouraged right now god has promised he's going to finish this work in you ask him say god give me boldness to carry on trusting that you're going to do the things that you've promised that you would do facing affliction god promises this that our present troubles are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us Sometimes what looks like the raging of the nations and the triumph of evil is simply the moments before God acts in power. And so I close with these words, this encouragement to you, brothers and sisters here in this city in St. John's in this province in Newfoundland 
in this work that God has given to you to do because he has given you this work to do, to take the gospel forward, to be bold with it, to call people to know Jesus, to repent and to believe that good news, to plant that flag and, and, and to trust that God will build his church. Hold fast. You say, but how long? How long do we hold fast when, when things seem to be going against us, when, when, when there's opposition all around? I, I say to you, hold fast. But don't you see that the entire Egyptian army is pressing down upon us and we're standing here in front of the Red Sea and there's no place to go? Hold fast. But don't you see, we, we've been bound with cords and they've made the furnace seven times hotter and I think they're going to push us in. Hold fast but there's a lion's den. They didn't feed them yesterday, and I think they're going to kick us in. Hold fast. But we've been in prison, uh, sold by our brothers into slavery for 14, 15 years here in Egypt, and it just doesn't seem there's an end. Hold fast. But evil men have taken the Son of God, and they nailed him on a cross, and we watched him die. Hold fast. You see, take a long view. Trust God. He's powerful. He's made promises to you. And he's sovereign. And I can tell you right now, I can't tell you what tomorrow will bring or next week or next year, but I know how it all ends. And that has great, great power to give us strength to carry on, praying all the way. Lord, look upon these threats that have made. Give us boldness to carry on. Underline what you're doing. And we will be faithful to you. Father, I give you thanks for these brothers and sisters, for this church, for this light. Father, not just for this church and this light, but Father, for every congregation where your light shines forth throughout this province. Lord, we pray that they would increase. Father, that you would move upon the hearts of people here in this room to carry your your gospel throughout the city and throughout this province. Father, that there would be an increase of burden amongst people in Canada for Newfoundland. Father, that, that more might come. Father, I pray for the places that I visited and the people that I met. Lord, that the opportunity might come to them, Lord, to hear the gospel preached. Lord, not only do we pray for new churches planted, but Father, there are places established, there are pulpits that have been built, Lord, where your word has not been preached in many, many decades. Lord, I pray that you might move upon the hearts of those people as you did during great awakenings, Lord, to stir them, Father, that some might be saved in their own pulpits through reading the Bibles they hardly ever open, that the word of God might be proclaimed in power and that souls might be saved. Lord, we give you thanks for your sovereignty and ask you to to give to us boldness now. In Jesus' name, amen.